You've tuned in to the Blind Spotters with Haven and James. Thank you guys for tuning in. We have a special, special, special guest this week, Mr. Scott Adams, writer, creator of Dilbert, and author of one of my uh, favorite recent books, Loser Think. Mr. Adams. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for taking out the time to uh, hang out with us today. You're a pretty outspoken character on uh, Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I have the advantage of uh, not having a boss who can fire me. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I referred to that as having a few money. Yeah. So yeah, I have. Uh, I feel guilty because everybody has freedom of speech, but not really. Not really. My my freedom of speech is a lot bigger than most people just because I don't have the fear of losing my job. Well, um, speaking of that, my question would be on with that is, do you feel like your freedom of speech is all limited at all because you have a brand? Yes, but I'm also also at the point where if that brand blew up tomorrow completely, I'd be like, well, I'll do something else and that would be fine. But uh, the, the newspaper business is uh, spectacular at protecting its creators, certainly cartoonists. And you can complain all day to the newspapers and they'll say, well, at least you're paying attention. <laughs> so the, the newspaper business is a little bit more resistant than just about any place else, any other business, I would think. And with that, how does the newspaper business look moving forward and going into the future? <laughs> A thriving for, business. So Dilbert has been published for over 30 years. Uh, and on the day one, I said to myself, you know, I'm not sure newspapers are going to last another five years, but I'll, I'll see what I can get out of this. And five years go by and I'm like, well, the next five years are not looking good. So here we are 30 years later. And if he asked me, I'd say, oh, I think five years. We got five years. <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to change my story for the next hundred years. Now, uh, the difference is, that the newspapers finally hit a tipping point. They, they were very profitable, and so they could shrink in quite a bit and still be at least profitable. But now that I think most of them have, have gone underwater. So I would expect that when, when they disappear, it will happen pretty quickly. I might lose a third of them this year just from coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So before we get too far off, um, obviously our title of our podcast is called Blind Spotters. What was the last blind spot that you recognized in yourself, maybe in the past five years? Something about uh, personally or something about the world? Either. Wow. Um, so finding my own. Uh, Both. How about that? <laughs> finding my own uh, flaws is, uh, is one of my favorite uh, hobbies. You know, it's, it's hard to remember them after you've <laughs> processed them. But as a, as a regular process, if I can find something that I thought was true that is just completely false, I love that. That's a great practice. Because, right, because the, those are the ones you should remind yourself. All right, remember when I thought mm -hmm. X? Um, you, uh, you know, my, my path in terms of my life has gone through many of those phases. You know, I was brought up religious. I changed from that. Then I heard about the simulation theory, you know, where we're all we're all simulated mm -hmm. creatures, and, and I thought, oh, well, 
I don't know what's true, but the odds of that being true are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would, if I had to pick one thing, it was when I was uh, starting a food company okay. years ago. I tried to create a a burrito that had all the nutrition that you needed. So if you only ate that burrito, you'd be good for the day, and whatever else you ate would be a bonus in terms of vitamins and minerals. And I thought that nutrition was certainly the most well understood of the sciences. I mean, I mean really, what could, be, what could be more basic, right? Yeah. Like, you know, do we not know that vitamins are good? You know, I, I, just, I just thought, well, I'll just form this company and, and satisfy this thing. First thing I learned is that all the doctors will say, no, you don't need uh, vitamin pills and fortification as long as you just eat a balanced meal. So I thought, well, well, let me do the math on that. So if you do the math on how to get all of your vitamins and minerals that are recommended just by the government, and that's not even a very high standard, you would have to eat something like a wheelbarrow full of food every day because the the amount that you eat to get full, you know, your 2,000 calories or whatever, doesn't even get close. Right. So the doctors were seemingly unaware of the difference between your actual, even a good diet, a really good diet doesn't get you close. And the fact that the, the government recommends this, so complete disconnect. And so that was my first hint. Wait a minute, maybe there's more going wrong here. And the longer I was in this business, the more I realized that nutrition is just fake science. I mean, you knew that the, the nutrition pyramid from years ago was literally just an, yeah, it was an industry created thing that was upside down. Uh, and there hasn't, there hasn't really been studies about vitamins and minerals, except for a few, like vitamin E, I guess is good if you're pregnant or something. Mm-hmm. But beyond those, those, those niche situations, there's a niche or niche, yeah. N-I-C-H-E. I, I should never say that, that word in public. <laughs> it's, like, it's like foyer or foyer. I'm like, oh, I think I got this wrong. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the, so once I learned the things which I just understood to be clearly scientifically studied to death were not even studied, or if they were, it was by the industry, it's just fake. And then you take that learning, you say, all right, let's apply it to the next thing. Mm. What if climate change isn't exactly what the scientists are telling us? Now, that doesn't mean it is, but mm-hmm. what if? So I, I take that that learning with me all the time. It's my, it's my key learning about how not to trust science. Yeah. Nutrition is a very individualistic thing. Uh, what works for you may not work for me. I mean, there's people with different, you know, uh, allergies and, you know, there's, it's, there's no one way to go about it. I, I find no matter what you're eating, it's a uh, portion control is the, I think is the biggest thing. Well, I, I wrote about this in my book, How to Fill Almost Everything and Still Win Big. And I, I take it from a, uh, a mental uh, part first. Like if you get the mental part, then the eating right is easier, of course. Yeah. And the mental part, I like to separate your cravings from your hunger. Mm, yeah, I like that. If you, treat, if you treat them as the same thing, you're, you're fighting two battles. One is that you're just hungry. There's not enough food in you. And the other is you really want that, that, that dessert. So I tell people, let's divide and conquer. Say, eat as much as you want of broccoli and yeah. know, salmon and stuff, but just one at a time, start reducing the number of sugary things until the, until your cravings are under control. Then once your cravings are under control, which is where I've where, 
where I am right now. And by the way, I slip now and then, have too many Snickers, yeah, chocolate bars. But then I'll, I'll take them out. And at this point, I can eat as much as I want right. because I'm not going to be overdosing on broccoli. Right. And I love broccoli. So I have no sense of denying myself anything. And if I, if I looked at a, a Snickers bar now, my, literally my favorite food, at the moment my craving is gone and it looks actually a little bit disgusting. Right. Okay. And, and it's amazing how, to, to the point about blind spots, when you realize that you can reprogram your preferences, yes. that's, that changes your whole worldview. Because we think that our preferences are a little bit hard-coded and like who I am, who I am is what I prefer you know, the most basic stuff, because you're not really your body so much. Right. And, and your mind can change on stuff. But you think, well, the things I want, the things I prefer, that's who I am. And you can just reprogram them. Like, it's not even hard. And, you know, for your, uh, your viewers, listeners, um, I've been trained hypnotist. And reprogramming somebody's preferences is unfortunately very easy. And people don't know that. I have a question about that. Uh, before that, I would have bought your burrito, just so you know, I would have been that guy. Um, how, what kind of lasting effects do you think hypnosis has? Well, lasting in what sense? Well, lasting in that, say somebody, I guess the most common thing we think about with hypnosis for people, um, maybe is like trying to quit smoking. Yeah. So the, the things that hypnosis is good for are almost opposite the things that people think it's good for. So what is not good for is quitting smoking and it's not good for losing weight. And my instructor, when I took hypnosis class, explained it to me this way. He goes, the reason that, that people eat too much is they like to eat. And if people like to do something, it's, it's something they want to do. It's really hard to talk them out of it, and it doesn't matter what method you use. But if somebody has decided, they've literally decided, I am going to quit smoking, it almost doesn't matter what method they use. Yes. They just need a method. The method that they pick, whether it's hypnosis or whatever it is, is going to give them a little extra confidence that they can do it, but they've already decided. So that's the key. The decision is the is the end point. You, you decide... And I like to use this example that, um, you know, there's a big difference between wanting something. People want to lose weight. They want to stop smoking, but they haven't decided. Mm -hmm. They think that the, they think that the hypnotist will make them decide and make it happen. But you're, you're, you've already, it is known whether you will succeed by your starting point, really, you know, if you've decided. Sure. And language change. You know, they talk about how somebody, if you, they quit smoking last week and you ask them or you offer them a cigarette, somebody might say, I just quit smoking. They're not going to be as successful as the person who said, I don't smoke. Well, in the sense, they just quit. Yeah, in the sense that it reveals their inner thoughts. Yes, mm -hmm. I would yes. say so. Uh, so is it good for like trauma? Where, 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 where do you find hypnosis, hypnosis to be effective? So here's the general rule. If it's something that you want, and there's nothing on the other side of that. There's no way, there's nothing arguing the other side, then it can be good. For example, let's say you were afraid of flying. There's no part of you that says, well, I'd like to be afraid of flying. I enjoy being afraid of flying. There's nothing good about it. So you, you have, you'd have a good chance on that. Um, just relaxing, uh, being maybe more comfortable playing a sport, uh, being able to speak in public. Uh, those sorts of things, because you want them and there's no downside. 
Well, that's good to know because there's lots of things I, I've, I've thought of uh, learning to do hypnosis. I'm a therapist by training. So, oh. yeah, it's a, it's a very misunderstood um, practice. And I would say the biggest thing you get out of it as the hypnotist is the understanding of how the brain works. Mm-hmm. And independent of whether you're formally ever putting anybody under hypnosis, which you know I, I do not at all, yeah. it just changes your whole worldview. You just see everything differently because you, the hypnotist, sees the world upside down, meaning that the normal way you see the world is that people are these rational creatures, ninety percent of the time. And you say to yourself, "Oh, sure, I get it. That ten percent of the time we'll get a little crazy." Yeah. The hypnotist turns that upside down and says, "No." You're irrational 90% of the time. That little bit of time that you're rational, it's because you didn't care about it. As soon as, as, soon as you care about it, you're into irrational territory. That sounds like that kind of training can bring a lot of revelations and reveal a lot about ourselves in the process. Yeah, I would say that's the thing that unlocked the universe for me. That, that was my single biggest um, understanding. The other was the uh, Dale Carnegie course. Uh, where, among other things, you, you learn to be a good public speaker. But they also teach you things like making uh, small talk. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and if you said to yourself, wait a minute, that's a skill? Are you telling me I can learn to, to talk, walk up to a stranger and make a conversation that you both would enjoy? And you wouldn't have thought that was necessarily a skill. You would think that was sort of baked into your personality. But I've seen you know, countless people who went through that and can do it effortlessly. It's just a skill. And how does it play into, I know you're big into persuasion. And I feel like, Haven, if I'm dominating this, I apologize. Oh, please, go ahead. Time. But go ahead, Scott, I apologize. Well, yeah, persuasion is um, the larger category, and hypnosis mm-hmm. is just one thing within it. But hypno- mm-hmm. persuasion would be everything from advertising, sales, marketing, promotion, you know debating Mm -hmm. all all that stuff and so hypnosis being small i assume it's only on an individual basis it's very difficult to sort of be hypnotic towards a group of people i would think i don't know that well you know usually when i talk about hypnosis um, sometimes i use the word to mean persuasion because i'm trying to be provocative Mm -hmm. that's that's not right usually and technically it would be one person in a room with one person who's who's willing and has an objective that's the normal way so but that said all of the learnings of hypnosis are compatible with persuasion in general so you could argue that any politician who was good at it was hypnotizing hypnotizing the people watching but it's, it's sort of the mild form that you you expect and you know it's coming and of course, Trump does that better than anybody. He, he uses a lot of the tricks of persuasion that uh, would not be obvious unless you studied it. You know, and you wonder, how in the world is he getting so much support? And why are these people so excited about him? Especially if you're on you know, the other side, you're like, he's doing all the wrong things. Why, why is it working when, in my opinion, he's doing all the wrong things? What are they seeing? And the answer is, he's really persuasive <laughs> uh, in a deep way that I've never seen in my life. But, of course, persuasion works on the people who want to be persuaded. So Republicans wanted to be persuaded because they wanted a champion. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's, that sort of leads into what my next question on that would have been is, 
the effectiveness or being able to persuade people who aren't interested in being persuaded to your side. You know, we're in a society that's kind of dug into our beliefs, whatever they are. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, if you're looking at a national election, uh, they're probably only, you know, 2% who can be persuaded. The, the rest, they decided months before the election. So you're not really working with a lot of people. And you can even argue that they already made up their mind too. Yeah. <laughs> But, but they're looking for something I call the fake because, which is the reason that you tell yourself is why you made your decision. But it's probably not. You know, the hypnotist in me says, we usually don't know why we make decisions. Yeah. And if it's something like picking a, a leader, I mean, that is so baked into our evolution as humans. It, it probably isn't that far off from whatever animals are doing about picking their leaders. You know, mm -hmm. different. But it's, it's going to be something basic. It's not, it's not a cognitive thing. It's not because you reasoned about the policies. It's probably because you decided just looking at them. You know, there, mm -hmm. there's a physicality that definitely matters for being president. That doesn't matter so much for being a mayor. But for president, yeah. And I was saying this morning on, on my own uh, live stream that uh, I think the public might prefer just reflexively somebody who looks like a predator because you don't want somebody who looks like prey. <laughs> you know, this is your mm -hmm. leader. Mm -hmm. you, you want to know that your leader can kill the other leader. That's just on some basic human level. That just feels important. Did, uh, did you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink? I did, go into yes. that. And I was real fascinated with all the studies on the snap decisions we make. And so that goes right along with what you're thinking. Yeah, I'm, I'm not totally convinced that everything in that book quite would hold up to scientific rigor, uh, but he's a fantastic author. I would recommend anything he writes. Yeah, he, he changes too. Like he, he's not, the thing I like about Malcolm is he doesn't, he's not stuck. Like if he, like he's all, he's kind of like you where you say, I'm looking for flaws in my thinking and processes. Um, so that's one thing I really enjoy about him. So just because he wrote that book, he's not like, that's it, that's the Bible. Like he'll be more than happy. Like, look, if you show me, where I'm off, I'm looking for where I was off too. You know, I, I was actually uh, thinking just this past week about creating a list of people that I know of who are capable of changing their mind, which is funny, isn't it? That's what this like whole that. podcast is about, actually. Yeah, I mean, even it would be a small list of yeah. people who have ever changed their mind on anything important. And I'm thinking, okay, I, I feel like I should be on that list. And, and then when I think who else is on the list, you know, it's less than 10 people. Is Trump on that list? Um, well, we've we've seen him change his mind on abortion. And that's that's a pretty big change. So okay. from his early days, he was pro to anti. Um, I don't know any other things he's necessarily changed on, but uh, yeah, I think he could actually. Yeah, he might be in that category. Go ahead, James. Well, you know, when I think of people changing their minds or having a big change it's to me it's very rare you see somebody who does that who just has gone through a methodical examination of their thoughts and what's going on i would think most people who have those big changes had a big flashpoint or traumatic event at some point whether not necessarily that it was traumatic to them but a huge event that sort of made them really refocus it wasn't almost that they refocused that they got refocused yeah, uh, the that could be one way to do it. The other way to do it would be somebody who is free from embarrassment. 
Mm-hmm. That's and you I, I often talk about that in, in my life, that uh, <clears throat> this is another thing that the Dale Carnegie course teaches. They actually teach you how to not be embarrassed. And it's a, it's a life skill that's just incredible. Now, I have the advantage of being a public figure for 30 years, so I've been mm-hmm. uh, embarrassed and shamed in every way that a public figure can. You, you, know, you only see like a fraction of it. Right. Imagine, imagine the private messages I get. <laughs> They're just horrifying. And so I've, I've achieved this level where I can't even think of anything that would embarrass me. And it wouldn't matter if I did something wrong. Yeah, you know, I would just say, well, that was stupid. I guess I did something wrong. But I don't think it would bother me. And when I see other people who are capable of changing their minds, they seem to have that same quality that, yeah. that they're, that they're not, uh, they don't feel like their, uh, their being is threatened by changing their mind or even being embarrassed. Cause it's the embarrassing part that locks you into your opinions. Like, Oh no, I don't want to be wrong. I love being wrong. You know, as long as it's not all the time, but yeah. like I said, the, the high profile times that I'm wrong are just, honestly kind of thrilling because I realize I've, you know, I've learned something important. And I think people who are overwhelmed with embarrassment or that happens, it's they're being driven by their insecurities. And so that says a lot to be able to go, Hey, I'm comfortable being embarrassed or. And and the way cognitive dissonance works, which is the thing that locks you into bad opinions is that you don't want to have a conflict between who you think you are, which is a rational person who knows what Mm -hmm. they're doing versus what you just did, which was clearly irrational and didn't make any sense. So they, they try to marry those in their mind. And then that's why you get people supporting opinions that you say to yourself, you know, it's long past the point where you should have changed that opinion. Yes. <laughs> but uh, in my case, I define myself as a person who changes this opinion and can. So I don't have the cognitive dissonance trigger because I'm never, I'm never not the person who can change his mind if you give me a good reason so I could do it effortlessly. Yeah. I, yeah. So, yeah. So while we're talking about this, uh, I, I, I listen to James Altucher daily. Uh, so that was a really great interview with him. And you had mentioned, um, that the black lives matter protest is fighting, basically fighting for the wrong thing. They should be focused on, education as the number one priority, which yeah. I, I kind of don't disagree with. Uh, for one, I'd like you kind of to give me your take on that movement. And I'd like to know how you would actually go about education reform, because I, I think we can acknowledge that the fact that schools based upon property taxes is the wrong way to go about it. <laughs> that's uh, that would be among the many problems yes well, t- uh, one of the top how about that but anyway go ahead so, so here, here's here's my problem with black lives matter as the organization okay uh, organizationally if they believe black lives matter would you not expect them to work on the highest priority and the highest priority by far has got to be education and here's the argument for that if you fix education Suddenly, you fi- you fixed economics. When I say fixed, you know nothing's one hundred percent, but moves you in the right direction. You've you've got jobs. You've got uh, you know if you have better income, you're almost always in a safer neighborhood. Basically, healthcare, everything is better if you start with a good educational base. But if you look at the total number of p- people that are affected by education, it's everybody. 
basically. It was, you know, even if you're already an adult, if you've got a kid, well, that's a pretty big impact if they get a bit good education versus a bad one. So that affects every part right down to how do the police treat you? Now, if, if you know, if we can be completely transparent, are people going to treat you the same if they look at your community and say, well, that's a community that's really, they're killing it. Man, this is the, the ones who really care about education. Are you going to have the same prejudiced feelings if you're prejudiced in the positive way? In other words, you, can you push out a negative prejudice by putting in a positive one? I think you could over time. So if you look at the total number of people who are affected by police killings, you, it's probably pretty big. You know, if you count the families and everything, it might be a thousand, a few thousand people. That's a lot of people. We care about that. We should do whatever we can to make that better. But look at education. You're talking millions, millions. Mm-hmm. It's one of the biggest problems in the country. And, the, and the, the base problem of education is the teachers' unions. Now, if this is the first time you're hearing that, nope. that is a crime because you know, at least some of your, your listeners – um, if you haven't heard that the teachers' unions are what prevent competition from, let's say, private schools and charter schools, uh, then you're missing the biggest thing. The teachers' unions, which, by the way, mostly white, I understand, are blocking any improvement in competition in the educational realm. And if you take competition out of anything, what happens? It doesn't work. We don't have any example where removing competition from something got you a better result. I mean, I would argue that even NASA is going to try harder because Elon Musk just showed what he could do with $1 billion when they were going to spend $26 billion to do what he did with his, with his last flight. So competition works every time. Nobody doubts that. I mean, it's not like debatable or anything. And it is absolutely true that the teachers' unions, plural, are preventing that. So if you get rid of the teachers' unions, you fix competition, you've got charter schools. And, and by the way, the Republicans and the black community have a very common interest. The Republicans are all over the charter schools and the private schools and the homeschooling and, and alternative uh, education. So um, if, the black, if Black Lives Matter wanted to make the biggest impact, it's kind of easy. It would be say, it would be say look, how about this year, you vote Republican if they can promise us to do something about the teachers' unions. If they can't, how about next year, we don't vote Republican. We'll give you a chance. We'll give you a chance. Here, here's what we need. And, and here's the thing that just, just makes me crazy. It just makes me crazy. Mm-hmm. You have no idea how helpful white people want to be. <laughs> it's like it's, <laughs> it's just such an untapped resource. You know, the, the average Republican is happy to help as long as something makes sense and the help would matter, right? So if you say, hey, uh, we're black America, we'd like you Republicans to help our, our biggest problem, and our biggest problem is education, and you've identified correctly it's the teachers' unions, can you work with us to dismantle them or take their power away? And Republicans would say, finally, finally. You're finally talking about your biggest priority, you're talking about something we can fix. You're on board. Let's let's get this done. And you know, you're not seeing that happen. That's very interesting because we got a fellow white here on the panel, James. Do you find that to be the case? I, I don't find that to be the case. 
which part of it? The part where he says most white people are trying to, the, 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 there is a huge gamut of white people that are trying to be helpful. We would uh, like to be helpful if they knew how to be. We'd okay. Like to be. Okay. I, so, I find, before, I'll just get this real quick. I find that the majority of the nation is under the poverty line or around the poverty line. And uh, this is a good analogy that Neil, Neil Brennan brought up. He said, white people treat racism. Do you remember back when you were, you'd be at home and you'd be playing with your toys and your mom would yell, um, Hey, uh, I'm, come get, come help me get the groceries out of the car. You'd be like, I'll be right there. That's the way why that's that's white people's attitude basically on trying on trying to and, and i think james had brought this up actually uh well, this is one of his questions so james go ahead with your question that's but i i feel like i feel that it's 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 on the back just, burner let me just throw this in you're, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're watching the black lives matter protests they're mostly white people well i mean, I mean the, the streets well are that's that's now. now that's now only because the, the timing of the George Floyd thing happening during this, it, it was it was like immaculate conception. Like, if you look at the previous, every other Black Lives Matter uh, protest, that was not the case. So I'm just, it's a little bit of timing there. But go ahead, James. Yeah, okay. Um, no, you go ahead right now. I'm, well, because... Are you talking about me asking about accumulation of wealth? Well, that too, but just like I, you find that to be the case, what he just said. He said he's white, white people like to help. Yes or no? Um, I think, first of all, saying white people, anything or any type of black people or <laughs> generalizing is very difficult. I think people want to be helpful, but I think which a lot of people struggle with is how do you get to a point where you don't feel like I'm giving up? something yes and i think that's a big problem that we have is feeling like something's being taken us and and that has everything to do with what's being asked so look at what black lives matter is asking now which is to reduce the police force now if you're white do you feel like that's taking something from you probably probably now let's let's say uh we banded together Mm-hmm. Black and Republicans. I'm not. I'm not Republican. I'm, I'm left of Bernie, but I, I like playing in that that field because I like <laughs> Republicans. Um, and imagine they banded together and they have a complete common interest in dismantling the um, school, the the teachers' unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's losing? That is literally something that's good for everybody. Um, and I, I also take Falk uh, Newsom's uh, uh, statement to heart, which is. He said that anything that's good for the black community is going to be good for everybody. Bro, I, I don't believe that. I, I totally, I've been telling James that for like a year. And I totally, but okay, I agree with you. But how many of your fellow whites know that? Well, that is, again, again <laughs> it, it totally comes down to what are you asking? If, okay. if you ask me to empty my wallet, I'm going to say, hmm, maybe you should get a job. If you ask me to march with you to get something we both want, better education, I'm down. So it, it has everything to do with asking for something that just makes us all better. Yeah, I guess the issue that many black people have is our interactions with the police are so, and uh, 
the, our interactions and frequency with the police are so drastically different. So therefore, what we are asking often doesn't mesh. And I and I believe the wording of defunding the police is wrong. What they're asking for is a reallocation of funds given the interactions that they've had. And this isn't new. I cannot emphasize enough, Scott, that these are just the instances that are being caught on camera. This stuff has been happening at a very high frequency. You can see the population of the nation. You can see the population in prison. There's a reason why these things happen. Remember, uh, Rick Ross is this big drug dealer. He said something very poignant. He's like, black people don't have any planes. So how did crack get into the system? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> so, but, um, so is that, is that the question of whose fault it is or, or is that what we're talking about? I don't think we're talking about fault. It's just more of an explanation of, you know, the, the, the state of where things are. So I'm saying when we ask for something and it doesn't, you know, maybe coincide. I mean, I agree with you what you're saying. What's good for black people, if, if, if black people, you know, somehow get to a point where the education is acceptable, it's automatically great for white people. And let's think about this, though. So let's say the police get straightened out, right? That means they're spending, obviously, uh, most, most violent crime is all a matter of proximity. Then that means they got more time to handle the stuff in your community. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm very much on the page of defunding the police really means reallocating, but you have to do it intelligently. And there's a lot of technology now that would let you do that. I mean, we have, we have uh, at this point, if you give somebody's DNA from a crime scene, yeah. um, at, the, at the very moment, most police forces will say, all right, we'll check our database of DNA and if it's someone who has not already been in the criminal justice system mm -hmm. where we could get their DNA before, can't find them. So something like m the vast majority of crimes are not solved because you're not in that DNA. Right. But there are outside companies that can say, give us that DNA. We'll see if any of their relatives are in any database anywhere, any genealogy one, ones, ones that have been public at some point. And their success rate is closer to 100%. In other words, if you were right at the edge of where if your DNA is at the scene, you're caught. Yeah. And you add cameras and facial recognition and you know maybe some drones and stuff. And there's just a whole bunch of stuff you could do to make crime so unappealing, you just could never get away with anything, of at least the hard crimes, um, that yeah, you should be able to cut the police force by 75% once you get to the point where, where nobody wants to do the crime anyway, they can't get away with it. Did you watch the 13th? On Netflix? Yeah, it's on Netflix. No, no, I haven't seen it. Okay. So how how much do you know about the history of policing um, in America? Probably not enough. Okay. What, what, so, where, where are my blind spots? <laughs> yeah. we need to, I need to make a drop for that, actually. So the history of policing basically <laughs> happened after uh, Emancipation Proclamation. So you had all these slaves, right, that were previously working that now don't do anything. So now, basically... The policing and the prison system uh, are cousins, basically. So they said, okay, well, we don't have any labor now. So they have a law that says, okay, the only people that can work are prisoners. 
So basically they created all these laws like loitering, right? So all these, so all these black people got arrested for these random things. They have anything to do if you think about it. So now they fund in the prison system. So now they're working for free. That's the history of policing, right? That has gone on for whatever, three or 400 years. That's a large reason why you see so many black people in prison. Let me let me let me suggest yes that there's uh and I, I think I wrote this in Loser Think mm. that if you connect the problem with the solution, you limit yourself deeply. So if you imagine that the, the problem was slavery and the, the legacy of it, then you say, All right, well, what's the solution if that's the problem? You want to pair your solution to the problem. So you say, well, maybe reparations, you know, maybe something like that. It very limits your your options. The other option would be to say, and uh, just just to throw something in the water here to, to rough it up a little bit, <laughs> the, let, let's call it the Kanye option. Now he didn't invent it, but let me finish. Go this. go ahead, I'm listening. So the Kanye option is not much different from anybody who would have sort of the positive thinking. Um, school of thought, uh-huh. which is, yeah, my situation sucks, but what do I do about it? And, and, and what are all the tools that I can use to do about it? If you think about it that way, uh, it frees your mind to look for solutions um, that don't have to do with how you got there. Let, let me put it another way. If your problem is your crime in your neighborhood and there's not much you can do about it, you can at least buy a gun and put a lock on your door. The lock on your door and your gun have nothing to do with the source of the problem. So as long as you allow yourself that uh, you're not stuck looking at the problem as where your solution needs to revolve around, mm-hmm. and it could be any solution, then you're free. Yeah, I get. I, okay, how about this? This is the part that the divide that that a many melanated and non-melanated people have. I'm trying. I'm actually trying to get whites and blacks not to use the word white and black because there's some they they go with one another if we can get out of that terminology i think we'll we're also moving anyway uh the acknowledgement of the ramifications is the is, is a is a big trough between and and as i say you shouldn't in other words suppose you could succeed and, and you could, you know, snap your fingers, you were magic, and you could transmit the entire feeling and knowledge and history of everything which is, you know, a historical real problem for mm-hmm. the black community. Mm-hmm. You could just transport that into the heads and the brains of every white person, and it's perfect. Nothing got lost behind. No good. Doesn't, doesn't buy you a freaking thing. Nothing. Yes. It would give you nothing. Because the solution wouldn't have anything to do with that. The solution is education, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And you can do those things independent of whatever happened in the past. No, no, I'm not even talking. I'm, I'm not even talking about that part. I'm talking about the fact that when you take dads, granddads, uncles away from families, okay, that's present, right? It has a huge trickle down effect to, and what I'm saying that this is why that matters is because that's been going on for 300 years. And that is... Mm-hmm. That is still present. 
Yeah, That's what yeah. I'm talking about. Uh, but no matter how you got there, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter to your solution. But See, but the mindset, but, though, I understand. I, I, I actually agree what you're saying. What I'm talking about is the mindset, the same way that you are telling me this when making sense is the same way that it's happening on the negative side and many back and many black families. That's what so, I'm saying. So, say more about that. So, um, so you're, we're, we're convinced that if you change, if you, if your mindset is the way we're thinking, like, okay, how, how am I going to be better tomorrow? How am I going to do better? tomorrow? It's, it's in the negative facet in many black communities because who, who are they because of what people are looking at from a day to day standpoint, it's like, you know, you, you can't get out of here. You know, this is what we do here. This is, we street people, whatever. I'm saying that's being reemphasized and I'm saying that has come is, is what is happening is trickling down from slavery. People, people not being in the household, uh, men not being in the household and around other guys and uh, around other younger people in each family. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think everybody uh, is willing to acknowledge that, you know, there's a big hole there that slavery is, you know, the, the ripple effect is, you know, the, the biggest part of that probably. Um, but and then there's also the, you know, the conservatives will argue, I'm not sure I'm on this page, but they'll argue that the social system has uh, encouraged fatherless families and, and that that's a problem. I'm a little bit more of a skeptic on that point. But, but certainly the point that nobody doubts is that it's all the same solution. You, you can give me a hundred different explanations and a hundred reasons for why you're here. Mm -hmm. still, still the same damn solution. Doesn't matter if you're white or black. If, you, if you're in a hole, it's the same freaking solution for everybody. And it's never been different. Get trained, you know, be useful. Things are going to work out. James? Well, you know, one of the things we're talking about there, there's a lot to talk about, you know, is getting people to change their sort of their mindset uh, and what we call locus of control. So people who have an external locus of control are the people who go, hey, how's your day going? And they're like, we'll see, because they're letting whatever happens control who they are and how they proceed that day. And if you have an internal locus of control, it's, hey, I'm controlling my experience. Right. Um, so I think, though, their minds like people have to be trained in to even change their thinking and how they think and so i agree with scott about like the education system needs to be changed we need to be training people on very different things um but i think it needs to go change even farther because anything that's an advanced education all of a sudden puts everybody in this servitude who have to take out loans and all of a sudden you become a slave to your education Yep. Um, sure. So I think there's a lot of concerns with that. I don't think it's as easy to change your mindset uh, for people without having proactive learning in it and being taught that and really seeking it out. Um, and sometimes it's even like I grew up in a two parent home. I grew up in a poor family, but we were a two parent home. Uh, and even for me, it took a long time to be able to get into mindset that I could be successful. Um, and I had the advantages of having, you know, a father in the home who was a hard worker and, you know, that I was taught a work ethic and that I was born with enough baseline of intelligence that I could do some things. Um, and even with all those advantages, it took me a great amount of time before I could engage success. 
And so I think the disadvantages of like the black community uh, and just people in poverty, I think that's such a bigger jumping off point. Yes. Um, now, now let, let me ask you about your experience because it may have uh, yeah. similar to mine. If you were, uh, so I was in a very low income, you know, obviously white family when I grew up. But my mother started telling us as soon as we were delivered in the operating room, you're going to college. Like It was like, I couldn't go a day without hearing it. You know, it's like, I'm two years old. Like, you're going to college, you're going to college, and, and you're going to be the best at whatever you do. Uh -huh. Now, she told me that, like, every day of my life, and I just, I just thought it was true. And sure enough, it worked out. And, and that's right. You were programmed right. I, I had a... I, and I yes. had a different experience uh, that was very well intended. And my experience was you can do anything you want. You have great potential. And every time I was felt like I was missing out uh, or not hitting the mark of what I thought I could do, every time I was told I had great potential, what I was hearing is you're failing. You're not living up. And so then there was this constant sort of subtle, unintended planting of your failure you're failing not at your failure but you're failing you're not living up to you've got the potential to go be whatever go be a senator you go be a doctor lawyer you're this or that and you're like i'm i'm failing as a salesperson in a job you know well, that's what i'm saying you know but i would argue that the people who have that i'm failing i'm failing uh, attitude actually become the successful ones i i think that what it takes for success is a flaw and the flaw mm -hmm. is that you're not good enough you haven't done enough and and for me i live with that constantly so as much as my mother said yeah you're you're gonna do fine by my own internal standards i am completely unsatisfied all the time yeah. which is why i get up and work so hard it's like i gotta fix that so so i wonder how you how you train somebody for that yeah that's an that's either it's an internal thing or you need to have first of all the person has to be open to learning which is we already talked about but I think it's an internal thing and it can go both ways. I mean, you can, you can go into a cocoon that same way too, where, I, where mm -hmm. you say, I'm not that I'm not good enough. It can go either way. I I've, uh, I've wanted to run this experiment, which is give me a class of, I don't know, 10 year olds, inner city black youths. And, mm -hmm. and let me just like talk to them for a day and just, just let me tell them what it takes, you know, wh where their minds need to be teach them the difference between wanting something and deciding to get it. I can make that happen, by the way. Could you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, well, now, classrooms are a bit amiss at the moment, but I, you know, sure, I can definitely make that happen. Yeah, it would, it would probably be a little less effective on video because there's something about the in-person, but I'd be willing to try it. Okay. So if, if you could hook me up with a... I'm sure James has some hookups, class. too. Yeah, they have to be old enough so they can understand, right? But young enough so you can get them early, and then you know it'd be hard to track the experiment. But we could at least ask the uh, the teacher at the end of the year if it made any difference. So, um, I want to go back to something we were talking about, and you're talking about my experience. I can tell you this, even to this day, and I feel like I'm a person who really knows myself. And here's one thing I know: I know if I'm in a funk or a bad mood it will correlate with my banking account being depleted. Like my, my psyche, if I've got a good cushion and things are thriving financially, my psyche is on top. Even if I've 
got drama with, you know, I have four kids, I've got four kids and I've got a wife and, you know, just the chaos of that. My psyche really is more tied to my bank account than I ever want to admit. Yeah. Um, well, money fixes a lot of things and it's, it's a pretty good store of power and security. So that, that makes sense. I mean, it really, well, it's really not the money. It's all the things that money does. And, and it's it freedom. Sense. Freedom of choices. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's freedom. Exactly. And, um, have a close family friend um, who I grew up with her son and she, her husband was an attorney and she said, I'll never forget this. She goes, you know, James, people always tell you money doesn't make you happy. And she goes, they're absolutely right. But what they don't tell you is lack of money makes you miserable as hell. <laughs> and that's absolutely true too. And so there's, there's a poverty mindset that sometimes is hard to get out of when you feel like, sort of like building your first business and trying to do it on sweat equity. You know, if you get a successful business going, then your next ideas are easier to go with because you can cash whip a lot of things in place. Things that your first business would have went a lot faster had you had the resources to go, man, I need to hire this person to do this and get this resource. You can do that if you have a bank. Um, and so I think there's a big financial problem you know, even in, you know, society and even in our world is the way we're able to now have such few people accumulate such massive wealths. Um, you know, I think about that all the time when I think, how does this work with, we have so many people who are in that poverty line and struggling and just making it. Um, and I don't know the solutions on that. I don't. Yeah, you know, the, uh, there are studies of baseline happiness if you mm -hmm. looked into that, where they, they find that even somebody who's an amputee, well, mm -hmm. the first few months of being an amputee, you're, you're not in a good mood. But you check back in you know two years, and they're about as happy as they were before. Yeah. So people do baseline happiness. I don't, I, let's try not to use that word, happiness. Which one? Happiness. It's, it's, how about we use the word contentment? I think that's more, I think because, because you know when they have the, ha you know, the happiness countries? There's a video on YouTube about, uh, I think it's, I want to say it's Sweden. It's Sweden or Norway. Oh, Sweden or Norway, it. for sure. Yeah. And it's not that we're going around all jovial and we're happy. No, it's just the fact that um, a lot of the stuff that contributes to a successful society, uh, as far as like free education, we're not worried about healthcare, um, we're... Uh, Daycare is kind of taken care of those kind of things. Like we're, we're good on those. So it's more contempt of happiness. We're not, you know, it's, you know, it's uh, I don't like that word. We just use contempt. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. But then I'll also emphasize that having gone through the exercise of not having money and then having money. Oh yeah. I've been to there. Oh my God. Oh, I agree. I, I, I'd rather be in the spot where you have my, I'm just saying that like, yeah. we're not trying to, we're not trying to be happy. We're just, we're trying to be at a point where we're content, you know, like my, my stuff's taken care of. I, I'm just, I'm interested to hear, you know, how good is capitalism? You know, we keep saying, you know, everybody says, you know, this is the greatest country in the world. Uh, most people don't even have a passport. So how can you even make this statement? I mean, everything that you, that you're talking about is basically through the media. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much compared to what? That's the problem yeah. with capitalism. If somebody comes up with a better model, wouldn't that be terrific? Maybe the robots and UBI, something will come up with a better model. But uh, capitalism is cruel. 
but it also is the best system that anybody's come up with. Now, it has to be, of course, continually adjusted to get rid of the monopolies and the, the rich people buying the government. It's sort of a, a continuous work in progress, and it's ugly, and it's not good for everybody, but it's probably the thing that keeps us the safest in the long run. Yeah, if everybody... I, I always have this interesting... Every for, for The people I talk to, everybody doesn't like the system that's currently in place. Most people don't as far as like, we have to get everybody. It's like every year they don't like the candidates that are for president. Uh, Democrats are blah, blah, blah. Republicans, blah, blah, blah. What would it take for us to be like, let's change the system. Everybody seems to have the same opinion as far as like, we, that, I don't like the system. But change it to what? I mean, it's always the, um, you know, you have a, a choice of imperfect versus worse. I mean, those are only options. How about just voting by each issue? The same way we vote for a president, we just go by each issue rather than having, or having real, like, actual parties, like, like 10 parties, like real parties. But... Well, you, well, you know, um, California votes by issue on a lot of stuff. I don't know how many other states yes. do, but the, the yeah. propositions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there, there's definitely something there because right now the the whole thing with Congress not being able to pass anything, yeah, uh, that's that's a useless system. I, I feel like transparency could fix that, but I don't I don't expect it to happen. I think money in politics is it's the number one issue. I mean, it's, that's that's yeah. that's what's holding us. Holding us back. Know, don't know exactly how you can fix that, though. Can you find uncorruptibles? Well, I think what well, we're talking about, you saying, well, you mentioned capitalism being the best thing that we have. Well, I mean, I can argue that that's a part of it. So everybody's got their. Well, yeah, the, the, <laughs> the form of the government, I would say, is, is separate. I mean, you could, Israel's got a whole different deal and they're capitalist. So, you know, it could be some kind of a coalition parliamenty kind of thing might work, but we're, it's not like we're seeing great results out of those countries either. So yeah. Well, qu- quite a few democratic models and they don't seem to have one that's the best. I guess what, I guess, do you think we are a, a weak link or strength link based? Kind? What I mean by that is if you, if you had a soccer team, right? If the nation was a soccer team, would we do better fixing the worst player or adding another superstar? Easy. This is easy. So part of my background is economics. That's my uh, one of my degrees. And if you take somebody from not working to working, that's a huge difference compared to uh, I already have a job and I got a 10% raise. Right. Those are those are not even slightly comparable. So yes, if you can help, and, and this is more to the point where I said, uh, anything that helps black America helps America. 100%. Because, because that's where the most unemployment is. Right. So if, you, if you, whatever, whatever fixes the most unemployment, that, that's what your GDP is based on. That's why my, my stocks would go up the most if black people were helped the most. So self-interest right there. Right. But I think our country is way more focused on the, the shiny bright, the fact that we have, uh, you know, I'm from Houston. So we have the best cancer city, uh, best cancer center in the world. Right. But we will be, and, and that cancer center gets hugely funded, but we'd be much better off 
if the hospital in Toledo was doing better. And that, but that correlates to all aspects of this country. We're so enamored with, we have the best, the best, the best. It, it doesn't make a difference when the majority of your country is poor. And that, and I just don't think it gets highlighted enough. And here's the other thing you were mentioning. I agree totally that the education, but black, like black lives matter. They don't have the power to do what you're Asset, what your assessment is? Oh, they do. Oh, they do. I think I think that's a that's a big difference of opinion. They do because they could uh, team up with the Republicans. The Republicans have the power, and if they could get more black votes, they do it in a heartbeat because they they like to get elected. James, do you think that's the, the case? The 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 self interest is so clean in this case. It's, I, it's, it's completely clean. I don't know <laughs> what it would take for any minority group, especially black world to team up with the Republicans. I think that'd be a very difficult proposition. I mean, and when you say that, what if the Democratic Party said, hey, let's team up and let's do these things? Would you be like, let's before that? Because this is about the third time you said if they team up with the Republicans, what is it about the Republicans and their ability to do things? Um, The Republicans like to do things that are properly incentive based and free market. Mm -hmm. So as long as you're doing that stuff, you're in good shape. So you saw that, um, you know, even the Republicans were on board with prison reform. Surprising, right? Is is that the last thing you would have expected? And it's because it kind of made sense economically because they added the retraining part. So as soon as you add the retraining part, then the Republicans can say, oh, you mean you're not just releasing criminals to, you know, do another crime, you're releasing them to have jobs. And would that help my taxes or, you know, and suddenly it's a Republican plan. They should be all in on prison reform, by the way, it's because if you think about it, these prisons, some of these, a lot of these prisons are privatized and let's just say they're doing a contract job like uh, construction. So if you're a construction company, you got to compete with somebody who's paying basically little to no wages. You're not going to get the construction job. Well, yeah, there, there's a million reasons why we should all be in favor of, not know, to mention the fact that you're people. not to mention the fact that you are that there are so many black people in prison because of marijuana laws that are being legalized now. Like, let's talk about that. <laughs> I, uh, if there were if there's one thing that makes me crazy, uh-huh. it's that it's that is that we're spending one penny keeping somebody in, in jail on drug charges. And of course, you know, if you layer on top of that, that there's the, the big racial disparity. I mean, you don't even need that. It's just a human thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why are we putting people in jail for that? Just, I, I don't know the argument to support it unless it's just money. Like you say, the prison systems have a lobby or something. I, I so just don't, I, I don't understand it at all. Oh, he's very, so, James is very familiar with this, by the way. Yeah. So, yeah. And I've read to where as far as federally in marijuana legalization, that the only group now that actively and is all in on campaigning against it are the private prison industry. And it's not because everybody's going to prison for marijuana. No. It's because people go to prison, they get out, they're on parole or they're on probation and they break that with marijuana. And so all of a sudden you're going back all the time. So it's that hook that keeps pulling them back. They're just, it's a catch and release, but you're not really releasing. You're just letting them run a little bit. 
But let me, add, <laughs> let, me add, let me add one little fact check that somebody did to me when I was talking about this. They said, uh, you know, all those, if you look at the records of number of people in prison for marijuana offenses, those are actually not real because they might have been pled down from some some larger, you know, might have had cocaine. I, I would argue that shouldn't be illegal either. But, you know, it may have been something that they pled down. So we don't know if the numbers are good, but still, if anybody's yes. in jail just for drugs. That's another thing that a lot of, it would seem like white people would understand this. I'm not going to, they're not a monolith, but when you get out of prison, oh, Scott. Please, just do me one favor. I want you to watch this movie. It just came out. It's on like Amazon. It's called Tijuana Jackson. With, with, this, this guy named Romney Malico. He's the black guy that was an, um, uh, the 40-year-old virgin. Okay. Okay. Please watch it. It's, it's a little hood, but it's got so many gems of what it's like actually for a prisoner to get out of prison. It is, I mean, are you familiar? I mean, it's, it's a damn near, what is it? What is the recidivism race? Like 60%, yeah. right? Yeah. Something like that. So that's yeah. what I'm, I mean, like, okay. I, I know people want us, want black people to get together, but man, it's, it's hard. It's extremely difficult, man. Given, gotta, given the current history. Yeah. And you've got to realize getting, you know, just being released from any type of incarceration. You come out to financial problems. Yes. You probably don't have your job anymore. Right. You've got all the past bills that you had to. Now you've got new bills coming. Plus, you've got court costs, probation costs. And the chances of your support system, depending on what you've done being there, is probably a lot less. So whether it was, you know, if I went to prison, you know, depending on why I'm there, you know, is my wife going to be around? You know, have I done some dumb things for the third time now? My family and my brothers or whoever, like, man, we're writing him off. And so now you don't have a support system. You've got to figure out how to function and get back on top when you're financially down. And then you got to try to get a job. And even if that job doesn't pay much, I mean, it's, you know, my dad used to joke, you know, when he'd say uh, another day, another dollar deeper in debt. Coming out of prison, it's coming way out. Uh, so, and you're so far behind. It's almost like you're in quick ones that are have the best success is if they've come from some affluence and that affluent family is willing to support them and have that. Because say even if I do get a job and then all of a sudden my parole officer or my probation officer decides, hey, I need you here in an hour. Now what I'm supposed to leave this assembly line? Yep. You know, I'm giving up my job and then that's a violation or I don't show up and that's a violation. Like there's a big no-win situation like being able to get out of this system and come off paper is such a big thing that could help a lot of people. You know, one, one of my biggest uh, side projects, I've got a number of them, is figuring out how to create a, a high quality of living at a very low cost. Because if it didn't cost you much, well, then you'd have lots more options. You know, you could take a, you know, a lower level job and, and have everything. And so I'm you know, working quite a bit with people who are trying to figure out how to make housing cheaper. And I feel like even to your Toledo example, I feel like the future is building a low cost, but even higher quality than a high cost yeah. place community where you can live. And most of that is just thinking it through. It doesn't cost extra money to do a lot of stuff. And even the the technology for building a home is, you know, there are lots of ways to bring that way, way, way down, probably by 90%. And uh, imagine if you didn't have to pay much for you know, electricity, Wi-Fi, yeah. insurance, rent. You can make all those things dirt cheap 
but organize it in a way where you're with people that, um, let's say, are your age or have your interests, young parents versus, you know, the seniors or whatever. If you're around people that you like, yeah, they have lots of interests. It's like college. Yeah. Suddenly, you don't care that you're in a college dormitory, the worst place you've ever lived physically. In some cases, it's a great lifestyle. It's like Rat Park. You ever seen that experiment? No. Uh, it's where where you have the rats and the cocaine in the in the two bottles. Uh, so what happens is so of course, like given no options, the rat's gonna go to the water with the cocaine. But now if you have rat park, right, and that and the, and the rat has access to rat park, the the rat doesn't go to the cocaine the water jug with the cocaine as much because he has all these other options. That's really the biggest thing with addicts. But I will, I mean, I'll go back to it. But the biggest thing I, I really would like to convey is that, okay, so I know obviously everything kind of, I mentioned slavery or whatever, but because of the ramifications of that and the way the prison system worked out and the way that so many blacks have been in prison, it's not just, I really want to emphasize it. It is not just the prisoner that goes to prison. It's the entire family. Sure. That has to yeah. deal with that, you know, and, and uh, yeah. so it's 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 huge. The fact that the whole family has to deal with everything that has gone on with said guy. Not only that, but here's the thing: a lot of people need to understand is when a black person becomes successful, and we know where black people are as far as the poverty rate. What are the odds that the rest of the family is doing well? I don't know. It's you tell me. Well, not obviously. If if black people are in poverty, then everybody they're the the ones that are doing well are outliers. Okay, uh, so that usually yeah. means that you are the one. So that means you're the one. Like when somebody needs something, you're the you're the person that they go to. Oh, hey. So right. so this is what I this is what I mean by the trickle down effect of all these things that kind of keep families from becoming affluent, if you don't understand what I mean. You know, what's interesting is you're making me wonder if if I were a uh, black man and I became successful, but all of my friends and family were not, I might have to get as far away from them as I possibly That's exact. Oh, thank you. That's exactly what happens. And what's what mm-hmm. what has been happening in the black community is we have associated success with whiteness. And if you notice everything that white people our associated success with is kind of anti-blackness. Basically, the nice, the niceness of your neighborhood is the absence of blackness for the most part. <laughs> Think about it. Uh, the, those are things you can say, but I can't say. But yes, your your observation uh, <laughs> is not disagreeable with me. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, James. In a, pr- in a practical sense, people do they do shortcut it that way. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, but that would also go in, pardon me for interruption, interrupting, but that also goes with anything. If I became successful and then everybody around me had their hand out, right. I've got to get to another spot. You know, I heard Chris Rock being interviewed one time by Jerry Seinfeld and his show. And he was talking about people ask me for $5,000. Like they're asking me for a cup of coffee. I don't remember the example, but I mean, Chris Rock said that. Yeah. Yes. And so Chris was talking about that. And that is a thing. And a lot of times it just has to do with like, even if, and I don't want to minimize, you know, the black experience in this, 
But even with poor white people or poor people of anything, if somebody comes up, everybody around them is expected. They think they all came up. We all in it. it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, this is my this is my bank. We this made it. We made it. We made it. And then if you look at it and I see it, you know, because I'm a sports fan and I've seen it in sports a lot where somebody gets in trouble. And even the commentators are like, you've got to get away from those people you grew up with. Like you hear that. Uh, and even the black commentators would say that is that you've got to get around people that are of the same level of success as you. Because when you're around people who don't have anything to lose, that's where your trouble is. Uh, no, you, you've heard the saying that you are the average of your five closest friends. 100%. Yeah. And so you've got to, yeah. And so that either, that becomes a community problem. I mean, I by no means have money. I wish I did. I fantasize about it. You know, I don't, I, I like we talk about words we don't like. I'm not a big fan of the word capitalism. I don't like capitalism, but I'm a, fan of the free market. And I think those are two different things. Cause I think with capitalism, you kind of manipulate, like you were talking about, you manipulate government officials and you buy that and you buy to where your interest has an advantageous spot as opposed to everybody in a free market working under the same thing. Um, but like when I fantasize about, Oh, if I had money, I'd buy a little farm somewhere with dorms on it. And every time somebody needed to ask me something, I'd go, Hey, you can go live on the farm. There's a garden out there. You can go work on the garden. There are probably a lot of people there, whether it's friends, family, whatever. Go live on the farm and just go invest a little bit because you try to think of how can I eliminate the drama of not just people coming from you, but the heaviness of that and that you're going to feel guilt and this or that. Like, man, you remember when I saved your life when you were eight? You saved my life. I was in a creek waist deep and you helped me get out. You know, you didn't save my life, but people have those different views and those different mindsets. Um, so it's, I, I love what I love about the free market and what I love about our society. And it has lots of flaws is that there's an opportunity to change your class. You're not stuck in a class. Although most of us end up being stuck in it. When you look back on their life, like whether they were stuck or not, that's what they live. They born one way and they ended that way. But we each have that of, Individually, we do well. Go ahead. Let me ask this. There, there's a, I think there's a misperception, which is, let's say Jeff Bezos goes, uh, he's a bad example. Yeah. I'll take, a, I'll, I'll take, <laughs> I'll take a, a generic rich guy. Generic rich guy builds a company, gets rich. Okay. Mm-hmm. If, he, if, the, if he had not done that, or whether he did it, it has no effect on other people. So, mm-hmm. like, you're... There, there's sort of a feeling that he took it from you, you know, isn't there? There's a sense yeah. that, like, somehow there were no. these resources that were for everybody, but the rich people took them all, as opposed to building something that wasn't there in the first place. No, I don't. I don't think that. For me, uh, the rich person usually started out in a great, in a decent spot for the most part, and when they get there, they're not paying what they should pay. What what would uh, how do you determine what someone should pay? Oh well, I mean, there, I mean, obviously we know that. All right, so do uh, you, you listen to Anand Giriadaris? You familiar yeah. with him? All yeah. right, so basically he's he basically just talks about billionaires. Basically, he's hung around them, went to that. They have a big they have a big summit in uh, Colorado every year, and he was just explaining, you know, just I mean, who. Why, why think about this they if they if they have a lot of influence why would they be in the business 
of trying to give their money to the government. I mean, they'll, they'll, the example will be like, uh, so, you know, um, Buffett will have a company and he'll say, oh, I'm only going to take a dollar as a salary, right? And he'll have his daughter as the CEO, right? And he'll have all these stock options. Right? But see, he'll say from the government standpoint, he's only making a dollar. But it's, each stock is worth the bill. So my point is they're not paying. He's not really paying the money. He's just evading. Like tax evasion is huge. And why? And why should they? Why they're not in the business of trying to give away their money in that in that way? They're trying to accumulate. That's why he's trying to be a trillionaire. Well, it's interesting if you if you take the Buffett example, he's committed to giving all of his money to the Gates Foundation, as 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 Gates, and both of them are planning to use the vast majority of it directly for helping poor people without the government taking a cut. Not here, by the way. They're, they're trying to do kind of worldwide thing. And that, that, that I'm also worried about that. Why, why, why aren't you helping the country that made you amazing? Why, why are you going to India for? in Africa. Huh? Africa's got to, you, you got to. But we're here. Let's, let's get it. Let's get us straight first. <laughs> just like you, just like you trying to get your family right. You know, let's yeah. get us straight first. Yeah, that's so, okay with me. That's yeah, okay but that's, but me. that's my point. Like, so yeah, I, I I don't I don't I'm not saying they took I'm not saying they took it away from us, like like you're like you're saying I don't think they're taking it away from. Them. I just think they started use they started in a decent position, they got the knowledge or whatever, and they and they blew up. But when they get there, the money's not the taxes aren't going to the government. <laughs> well, um, you could argue the economist the economist in me wants to push back a little bit. If you took the sum of all of the uh, the Warren Buffett or anybody's companies, and you look at the number of employees that they employ, all of whom are paying taxes but would otherwise not have these jobs except for this company was formed. I would argue that via their via their very various enterprises, everything from property taxes, sales taxes, when they sell their product, all of that, uh, probably a billionaire who pays zero taxes is adding more to the tax base of the country than than you or I. So do you do you think Amazon would do a better job of reforming education than the government does? Uh, I'll go further than that. It will. I, I, I would say if you were to bet on it, Amazon will be the prime delivery of uh, at least you know digital education. And all they have to do is use the same model that they use for books. Right now, online education largely is terrible because all they do is film a teacher who you know, was willing to be filmed, basically. But if you took it to the bestseller list, where you said, all right, anybody can make a class on this topic, and hundreds and thousands of people make a class, and then they find the one that's just killer. It's like the bestseller. It's to the point where you'd say, you know, I would take that geometry class for fun. That's how good that teacher is. Now, once you get to the point where the best teacher in the world is recognized because that would be the business model, just like bestsellers. Uh, that's transformative. And I would say there's no chance that Amazon will not be in that business. In 10 years, Amazon might be your primary digital education. I used to, and I, you know what, for a long time, I agreed with you. But the other part you got to understand is that I don't think, I don't think the issue is that simplistic. I don't think it's just Amazon will I don't, education is a complicated system. Infrastructure, it's like all the stuff the government runs, it's difficult. And I don't think 
and I don't think it's that that simplistic. Well, yeah. consider that homeschooling is the most uh, is the fastest growing area of schooling. So, and that's working out well. People are getting good results, which is why it I am all for that. By the way, I'm hundred yeah. percent for that. And, and here's here's where the uh, the black community and the conservatives just they're they're so on the same page on the most important thing, mm -hmm. just makes me crazy. All right, but uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we're going to have a, a big competitive messy market for education and we don't know where it's going to end up but if i had to put my money on it it's i think it's going to end up at amazon and maybe amazon is the coursework that supports your homeschooling that would be the model i would expect yeah so this is something for obviously i want to get to something for the listeners so i would like to know actionable steps for someone who's job is in limbo or eliminated and i'd also like to know actionable steps for parents of kids i think we're on the same page as far as college four-year colleges i believe are going to be just turned totally upside down and unnecessary for the majority of the public uh, james mm -hmm. has four kids so i think this will really help him so so yeah actionable steps for uh a person just just who doesn't have a job anymore like a waiter in New York, whatever, uh, as far as like what industries he should be leaning towards and then actionable steps for parent. Do you have any kids, by the way? Uh, Stepkids. Okay. Yes. All right, go ahead. Um, well, as I write in how to fill almost everything is still one big, you should work on your talent stack first. In other words, you should intelligently layer skills, which are usually easy to acquire. You know where to acquire most of them. That makes sense together. So, you know, if you're good at doing your job, maybe you take a course to be a good public speaker. Mm -hmm. And then when they're looking for, you know, who to promote, well, somebody who knows the business and also can speak to a crowd, you're, you're automatically, you would stand out. So building your skill stack intelligently with things that really work well together is, is the number one tip. Um, the, the other tip, I'm gonna give you the best career advice maybe you've ever heard. Hold on. <laughs> uh, and this came from my old neighbor who uh, was dirt poor, grew up literally with an outhouse, you know, joined the military at 16 illegally, had nothing. And he was living in a, in a high end house next to me as a senior citizen. And I said, how did you do it? Like, how do you go from nothing to all of this? And he told me this story. His first job was selling salt to uh, grocery stores. And I laughed. I said, how the hell do you sell salt? Because isn't your salt exactly like the other guy's salt? If it isn't cheaper, yeah, it wasn't, how the hell do you sell it? He goes, well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> there, was this, there was this one market, supermarket, didn't want my salt. I called on him a few times. But I, he mentioned that he was going to spend the weekend reorganizing his shelves. So the weekend comes. I show up at his store, which is closed for the reorganization. And he said, uh, I'm here to help you reorganize your shelves. <laughs> and the guy's like, what? He goes, yeah, I just came to help you. you got some time. I'm going to help you reorganize your shelves. Works with the guy all day. Asks for nothing in return. Big salt order comes in. He was, he was a salt guy forever. The thing that you learn, especially in Silicon Valley, is that going first with the favor works every freaking time. You know, I, I had a... Uh, uh, 
you know, there was a guy I used to sh shovel his walk when I was a kid, you know, 12 years old. And it was a real hard job, but I would do like extra. I mean, I would do more than he was asking for. And he couldn't shovel money in my direction fast enough because he wanted to be the guy who was better than me. And mm. as soon as I showed I was better than him, because I was doing more than asked and asking nothing in return, mm. he would have hired me for anything. If you take that model, you're, you're a black kid, you're, you've got everything working against you, mm -hmm. you find an employer. Oh, by the way, you remember the story of the, there were some protests, there was a famous story, maybe you saw it in the news. Uh, there was a black youth, I forget, it might have been 18 or so. He saw the destruction in the street. He wasn't really part of the protest or anything. So he takes his broom and he goes out and yeah. he just starts cleaning. Sweet. Yes. Do you know how many job offers that guy got? I'm sure he got a lot. And it wasn't somebody hard. They gave him a car. They offered to pay right. schooling. If, if, if you can find me somebody who will do something for somebody else with nothing asked in return, I'm going to hire that person so fast. And the rest, I won't even talk to the rest of the people. I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I want you because mm. you, you understand that. And it's not even the doing it. It's the understanding it. Mm. It's just a higher level of awareness, really about how humanity is, is wired. We are a reciprocity-based creatures. And if you use that, it really works well. And if you don't, it doesn't. And I'll tell you, when I was trying to do a startup, I was meeting a lot of um, you know, already successful people in Silicon Valley. Every single one of them, uh, none of them were quite in the, in the place to fund my startup, but 100% of them said, please come to me if you need anything. And the thing is, they all meant it. It wasn't bullshit. Every one of them meant it. You come to me if you need something. And it wasn't because it's me. Because what I learned is that's the culture of the valley. The valley is, what can I do for you? Mm -hmm. And you take that mindset of, what can I do for you? You can have a very successful life. What were you providing? What was your favorite of them? What were you? You said, because the kid was sweeping up. So what were you giving? What were you, in order for them to ask you know, come to me. What were what were you giving them? Like, well, as a, in, in the example of Silicon Valley, I was I was asking them for money. Okay. They were not in the funding. You know, it wasn't the right investment for them, okay. which I understand. But they were still willing to give me something else. Okay. Is, oh, that's their attitude. You're saying that's the attitude of the of the culture there. Right. Okay. They, they don't let you leave without giving you something. Right. And and they know that that will come back to them in many ways, and of course it does. So. I've got, uh, I'll tell a quick story. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories. And then I've got a question to follow up for it. Um, so a friend of mine, who's an executive in Silicon Valley talks about the worst advice he'd ever got was from his dad. Uh, when you talk about advice and when he was in high school, uh, he went to high school in the late eighties, early nineties, his dad, he, he decided to take a typing class and his dad said, son, you don't have to learn how to type a man will always have a secretary. So my question is this, what bad advice are we giving people now for the future? Oh, I love that question. What bad advice? The, my, my favorite bad advice is be yourself. <laughs> what the hell does that be? <laughs> in fact, that's the most loserish advice you could give anybody is be yourself. If you're not working on being the, the better version of you, how about don't be yourself Try to be something better. You should be continuously learning, evolving, adding to your talent stack. But the last thing you want to do is be yourself. Be better than that. 
because that's just not good enough. So that, that would be my, my top thing. Um, the other bad advice is, you know, just go to college and get some generic degree that you have to have a big loan for. I mean, that's just horrible advice. Uh, that's, that's life destroying advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also the, uh, be the best you can be at one thing. Um, because that, that gives you too narrow a focus. It could be, Oh, uh, here's, here it is. Here's your one worst advice. Hold on. Is to be goal oriented as opposed to be systems oriented. This is ah, I like another, that. Yeah. one of my big things that I write about. The goal is not to lose 10 pounds. The goal is to learn how to exercise on a regular basis right. and continually learn more how to do it, how to understand what foods are good for you and what aren't and how to work on your cravings. So you'd have systems for your diet and your exercise as opposed to a goal, you know? And likewise for your career, your system should be improving your talent stack. And then on top of that, I would say, improve your networking. There's probably nothing more predictive of your opportunities than how many people know your name and can contact you. You know, the, the single best thing you can do is, is take your small little reach and extend it through the people you know, so that if there's a job on the other side of the world, there's a guy who tells you and said, Hey, I just found a job on the other side of the world. You never would have known about. Um, so play the, I would say, play the odds, adding to your talent stack, doing systems instead of goals and having as much of a network as you can. Those are just mathematically guaranteed to be better. And then on top of that, leave wherever you are. Oh, if you can. that's it's huge. The, it's the hardest thing. But as soon as I, I graduated from college, Instead of staying in my town of 2,000 people where there was no opportunity, I traded my uh, car, beat up used car, for a one-way ticket to California. And I took uh, two suitcases, and I just got in a plane, and I didn't have a plan other than to see my brother and see if I could figure out what was going on there. And I said to myself, I've got to go where the luck is, right? Because everybody agrees that luck has got to be the biggest you know, at least the immediate factor that makes somebody succeed and somebody doesn't. You always find that luck part in my story there, you know, you'll find them as well. But the reason I could have luck is because I went to a, a, a luck rich environment. I went to the Bay area, right? Yeah. A lot of stuff could happen. I don't know exactly what, but man, a lot of stuff could happen. And then I started, you know, continually building my skills until I was ready to do lots of different things cartooning actually came later. Now I agree. I, I'm a, I'll say a poker playing advocate, uh, <laughs> but I don't, I don't believe in luck anymore. I do believe that lucky, lucky people continuously put themselves in position. That's how, that's how yeah. I look at it. They're there's always a, there. A, there's a, there's a researcher, Dr. Richard Wiseman, who did this study on luck. He wanted to find out if there was actually luck. Do some people have actual, uh, this thing called luck? Now, of course, he did control studies and it doesn't right. show up. You know, nobody can guess right. a coin flip better than right. anybody else on average. But then he did this study, which is just mind-blowing to me. It's, this, this can rewire your brain when you hear this. It did to me. He, he had uh, two groups that uh, 
that designated themselves as either lucky people or unlucky. It was right. just their own self-image. He said, look at this newspaper and count up the number of photographs in it. Now, the unlucky people counted them. It took them several minutes, but on average, they got the right answer. And let's say the answer was 42 photographs. The lucky people also got the right answer, but instead of taking minutes to finish, they were done in seconds. And the reason is that on the second page of all the newspapers for both groups, in big letters, it said, stop reading, stop looking at the photographs. There are 42. Now, the people who thought they were lucky saw it on average. The people who, the people who did not expect luck to ever touch them weren't looking for it. And literally, their, their field of perception had narrowed to the task. But the lucky people were saying, well, I have a task, but I'm also lucky. Yeah. So I better, better keep my eyes out. It's going to happen <laughs> yeah. any moment. Now, there it is. There it is. Now, once you've heard that for the first time, Every time you hear somebody who um, got successful, find out that moment when they noticed something. It's often there. Not every time, but there'll be that time when somebody says, you know, and then I noticed that if you just took this and combined it with this, this would be amazing. Idea sex. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of noticing that the people who are, quote, lucky seem to have and it has more to do with your optimism and then here's the 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 kicker the researcher found out that you could train people to widen their field of perception of course for luck for luck yes simply by repeating that they're going to be lucky or praying it didn't matter what they did as long as they tuned themselves to luck well there it was and and in my story there was a amazing little bit of luck that maybe i never would have noticed and, and that was you know a big big difference for me Mm-hmm. So tell me this. I'm sure there were other people who wrote comic strips that, you know, within, you know, a couple of years before and after you that started. There are probably funny ones, good ones, this or that. What made yours become so big? Like you, you're the exception here. Yeah. They, your strip. This is a perfect example of the talent stack concept. So before I did the comic strip, I had an MBA, 16 years of experience, ultimately 16 years of experience in corporate America in a bunch of different fields from finance to marketing to you name it. And when I started the comic, I did it as a business person, not an artist. So I had more skills that, than an artist normally would bring to it. And one of them was listening to the customer, which sounds so obvious, right? It's like, well, duh, any business has to listen to the customer. Well, my comic started down as a generic comic. You know, Dilbert had a job, but it wasn't really about that. He was at home most of the time. And, and every now and then he'd be in the office and people would write to me by email mostly. And they would say, you know, we like your comic. It's kind of clever, but we really like it when he's at work. We really like it. And I'd be like, huh. And then I'd get another one. Huh. Huh. And so I did what artists don't do. I changed my product. All right. Specifically for the customer. There's, there's uh, one other artist I know who did that who is uh, James, uh, Jim Davis, who did Garfield. Mm-hmm. His first comic was a bug, a gnat. I think it was a bug. And uh, the editor said, you know, people don't like bugs. And he said, well, what, what do people love? Dogs. Well, what's the one <laughs> character? Cat. Yeah. And, and then it's Garfield. So uh, Jim Davis has a background in business. I can tell you this business. Yes. Scott, I can tell you this. If you, with 
therapists, counselors, psychologists, the best ones, and I don't know if they're good at therapy or psychology, but the ones that do the best are the best business people. That um, makes sense. They really are. They're the ones who have the most thriving practices. Yeah. Um, just they're just clean with their business. The, the ability to understand risk management is absent in a lot of the artist community. And I don't know if it's from lack of exposure or whatever it is that made them an artist. I don't know over the place. I'll, I'll tell you some examples. First of all, let me start by saying I am the worst manager slash leader ever because in order to be good at it, you have to be a little bit cruel. And I, 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 I'd rather draw a comic strip where people like it and nobody gets hurt. You know, I, I like where everybody wins or at least they don't they don't care about me. I don't like having to crush somebody to get something done. So I didn't want to be a trial lawyer and uh, being a manager is, is sort of half uh, management, half cruelty. So I'm terrible at it. Uh, but the one of the best managers I saw did something very clever and he did social engineering of his team. And specifically he would add one young, attractive female to what tended to be you know, a smaller group of men because it would completely change the chemistry. And you've probably seen this. You just add a woman in the room with a bunch of guys and suddenly all the chemistry has changed. But he would do it intelligently in a way that made you want to go to work, not because you wanted to get with the woman, right? It's just the chemistry is different. It's just, a, you know, the, the, the jokes come easier. It's just a lot of stuff that's, that's better if you have a little, little bit of uh, diversity there. So he was a genius at that. And that was one of the best examples I've seen. Now, one of the techniques I used, which made my employees like me, but I don't think it made me a good manager, is that I had a requirement when I was supervising people that they had to be learning something. And I said, if you're not learning something, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be on you every day. And here's the thing: it doesn't have to be relative to the job. Mm -hmm. My my theory was that people who are learning are happy and content, and they're growing like they're, they're heading somewhere. If you feel like you're heading somewhere, you're not as concerned about where you are because you're like, oh, I'm heading here. So that's why mm -hmm. you can be a student and have a, a low lifestyle because, well, I'm heading this way. So I just made sure that they, they were taking that outside class. If they weren't doing that, I would teach them something if I knew it. I just said, it's just, it's not optional. You've got to be learning something because I don't want you to be in this job in two years. And they love me. Because I was trying to get all of them out of my department, but in a good way. So right. yeah. I'm going to get you promoted. I'm going to get you smarter, and and I'm going to try to get rid of you. That that's my main goal is to get rid of you. That was a, you know it was an entry level job, so there wasn't anybody who wanted to stay there if they had an option. That's uh, that's great because I sit there and I think about managers have I had or business I've had. Now, I'll be honest, I haven't, like, um, the book you had, um, you know, the uh, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Win Big, I haven't read that. But what's interesting, and I think about that, and I hear what you're saying, is I think about I've worked for people who were business owners or business managers that weren't any good, and somehow their business succeeded. And I always found that very inspiring. Like if they can make it, I can make it. Like if I see a bad movie, I think to myself, I can write a better movie than that, you know? And so I'm actually a, a very weirdly inspired by incompetence, successful incompetence. That's, 
Yeah. Uh, Scott, you seem to you seem to you seem to register with that for some reason. <laughs> I, was, I was saying it just yesterday uh, or the other day to a fourteen-year-old uh, step kid, uh, and I, I was saying that uh, that uh, you know thinking about driving. You know, does it, does it look like scary and hard to drive? And I was sitting in the car, I said, see all those cars? Yeah. Half of them are idiots. They're driving fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's how easy it is. Yeah. There are a million idiots who are driving just fine. You're, you're going to have no problem at all. That's awesome. What would you be going with, uh, you know, the, the second part of the question was uh, your advice for parents as far as where, uh, you know what, and we need to kind of separate this. Um for let's say lower income parents and your advice for uh more parents that are uh, more around the average income level oh, oh, i'm sorry a, a higher income level you know the the higher income level people have this built-in advantage that they can just live their life as parents and the kids are just going to observe they go oh this is how you treat people this mm-hmm. is this is how you do stuff so that's sort of automatic. And I, since I didn't have that experience myself, uh, I'll tell you that, uh, as I said earlier, my mother's continuous uh, brainwashing mm-hmm. of going to college, which made sense, a little more since then, and making something of yourself and working hard, uh, it was just like an operating system that was instilled into me. And mm-hmm. I don't think you can beat that. She also had this great thing, which may be the single most important thing I've learned, which is, you know, when you're kids, if you have siblings and one of your siblings gets something you didn't, you say, that's not fair. Oh, no. And, 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 and my mother would say, life's not fair. And I'd be like, uh, but it's not fair. And she'd say, I'm not going to fix that. Life's not fair. And until you get the life's not fair, and that it's up to you to get your, your fair share and more if you can, you're going to be arguing what's fair. And, and that is a bad place to be if you want to succeed. I always say to my nieces and nephews and my wife, fair is a place where pigs are judged. That's a great... Oh, fair, fair is a place where pigs are judged. Oh, That's I it. I like it. That's all it is. So what I... Okay, I, you did answer the question, but I mean by... I mean, like, actionable steps as far as educating those particular groups you understand what i'm saying so if you're in a more affluent place uh you got wi-fi access you got computers you know obviously the teachers now lower income people have jobs where you can't be at home where school was kind of a daycare I, w- I would say, um, you know, I think we touched on this earlier, that you can only become what you can imagine. Right. You can only do what you can imagine. And mm-hmm. if you don't have any role models except for professional athletes and drug dealers in your neighborhood, well, that's all you can imagine. Right. My mother actually took me to meet the only, I think he was at the time, the only lawyer in my town. Okay. Because he, what made him uh, notable is he was the only person with a proper good job. A proper good job. I like that. That we knew. Yeah, a proper good job. Now, okay. of course, all uh, I'm, I'm very adamant that all work, all work is honorable. Period. Mm-hmm. But she wanted me to rise See that. above my town, right. and she said, "There's basically one guy in the town who I will, you know, who's the role model. Come meet him." Right. And so I, I got to actually now I could imagine being a lawyer, 
because I met one and I was like, oh, he's like a normal human, not a superhuman or anything like that. So for a while, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. But once you get ex you know, exposed to more people, you have more, more things you can imagine. But I would say if there was one thing I would fix in the inner cities is to try to give them a direct personal contact with a variety of people in a variety of jobs that are successful. Okay. James? Um, I, you know, I, I agree with that. I think, and this even goes down to with young kids and coming from poor neighborhoods or that type of thing. Um, I had somebody, we talked about the, we were debating the benefits of school, specifically college and business degrees. And the idea was if you're going to go into business, there's probably 10 to 15 books you can go get. And the second thing is go get a mentor in business. And so I think active mentoring and finding these active mentors, whether they're from that neighborhood or from somewhere else, but having somebody successful invested in these kids individually, I think can go a long way to help. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, without the personal contact, I don't think it becomes real. Oh, 100%. So, any other questions, James? I mean, uh, I am good. Scott? Uh, that was really good, man. I think we had a very, I think we had a fantastic conversation. We got a lot accomplished. Did we uncover a blind spot <laughs> on the podcast for you? I feel like uh, my memory is terrible, but I feel like there was a point where you said something that blew my mind about uh, the black, white, what, I'm trying to remember that. Do you remember? We said a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Well, but there was something that you said that that made me shake my head a little bit. And I was like, huh. Oh, uh, maybe, it, was it about um, just like what, what they need to understand as far as, it was either like, the fact that the whole family goes to prison, uh, the history of policing. Oh, the history of policing. Right. Yes. I had never heard that before. Yeah. That, so that's, that, a, was, that was mind blowing. Yeah. That's a big reason why we're kind of in this, that, that black lives matter is so big on defunded because of the history of it. That's, you know, it's basically like, you know, uh, corralling ex slaves. That's how policing started. And it's, you yeah, know, the interact yeah, that's, yeah, I, I feel like that's the sort of knowledge that will like sit there and reprogram my mind over time. Cause mm -hmm. that is, that's just like a, a slap in the face of my God, I, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I listen, uh, that's, I'm, I, that's the whole reason we started this podcast is kind of just kind of reshaping, uh, people's perceptions. You do a great job of that in your books. Um, so I, like I said, I just can't, uh, thank you enough for joining us. Uh, if, you know, if, if you ever want to come back on, you got a open opportunity here, uh, for sure. Thank you so much. I, I enjoyed every bit of it. So I appreciate it. James. Hey, I had a great time. I learned a lot. Um, you know, I'm one of those who I love learning. So, I mean, I've heard about, you know, Dell Carnegie training a lot and, uh, the more you said it, the more. Where my blind spot, what I learned that I'd never thought about is developing the skill of small talk. Um, oh, yeah. That's something I never thought about. You know, I thought either you got it or you don't. Right. Um, 
And so that's something that really, really kind of not triggered me, but triggered me in a positive way of like, mm, this is interesting. Um, and, you know, I'm one of those that believe I was right on target with you when you're talking about, you know, building your skill stack. Um, I think that's a huge thing. Um, I, I'm one of those who don't, who didn't do that at the beginning. I wondered aimlessly. I was, you know, I'm, you know, probably like you as a little bit of an artist. You're a lot of an artist, but you took it from a business point of view is you start having a dreamer and I want it to be everything. And so when you want to be everything, you end up being nothing, you know, you dabble in the stuff. And so I think about, you know, cause I always have advice. I've got kids, you know, my oldest is 10. My youngest is five. Uh, my five-year-old thinks it's not fair. means I didn't get what I want. She doesn't understand what's fair yet. And that's kind of amusing on that conversation. But I've also got nephews right now that are about to enter that. Do I go to school and that type of thing? And I really, you know, as far as college, and I really am adamant on when I talk to young people of, if you don't have something very specific you're going to college for, that you need college to have. Like I want to be an, you know, say you want to be an engineer or a doctor. Okay, that's a good path. But, you know, I want to be, a, you know, a writer or I want to go into business. Or I want to do that. I think college is one of the worst investments financially you can do to do that. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I am. Um, I really love that. And I, I think about, um, yeah. And I never thought about the, uh, the, um, being yourself and not being yourself. I think that's good advice is be yeah. the best part of yourself. Kind of always known that, but never really have that articulated that way. Trying to better yourself about it actively. Yeah. So, all right. I get a lot from it. I appreciate it. Good. So what, uh, if, I don't know if you, uh, do you, I assume both of you guys realize. So, uh, obviously your books, uh, how to win big. Was it how to win bigly? Uh, there's oh, win bigly, how to fail almost everything and still win big. And the new one is called loser think and loser think. Okay. In addition to those, do you have any docs or other readings that you would implore people to indulge in? Yeah, you should uh, Google the phrase persuasion reading list, and you'll see it'll pop up with my list of uh, books that are in the field of persuasion, because persuasion can be added on to every other kind of skill. It's, it's just, it should be a requirement in every skill stack. You're always, you're always selling something, mm -hmm. even if you're just selling yourself. So persuasion yeah. is, is maybe the, the alpha skill. James, you have anything? Thank you, Scott. Uh, I want everybody to go watch Tijuana Jackson. I'm telling you, thank me later. It's hilarious. And you know, he has some absolutely great uh, advice, great tidbits in there. Right. So, Scott, thank you so much. Um, please make sure you like, subscribe, and review us once we get this thing up. Um, this has been an absolute pleasure, and we hope to have you back. Thanks so much. Hope to be back.